uh, Dave started his love affair with the Civil War in the fourth grade, and some devious librarian steered him toward the Civil War section, and he's been in serious trouble ever since. Dave is a co-author of a book called The Battle of Carthage, uh, which is about the Civil War in Missouri, and he operates Heinz Civil War tours specializing in the Trans-Mississippi, which may have something to do with the reason Ted picked him as number two guide for our spring tour. So you'll be seeing more of him. He's a member of the National Speakers Association and appears before audiences all over the United States, uh, making presentations on history and education and so forth. He teaches history at Rolla High School, and he probably does a good job even though he's a friend of Larry Gibbs. His topic tonight is from clerk to colonel, Philip H. Sheridan, a look at the early Civil War career. Dave Hines, please. Thank you. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It is indeed a privilege to come to Chicago and to do this even on short notice. I do need to get one thing out of the way tonight. Being a member of the National Speakers Association, every time you give a speech, you have to get an evaluation. So if you would tonight before you go, good, bad, ugly, different, whatever, even though I'm not Gary Gallagher, if you would please leave that up here on this table and I'll collect those and, and get those back and that would be most welcome if you would help me in that respect. Well, again, I apologize for not being Gary Gallagher and my speech is not on Robert E. Lee or Jubal Early tonight which uh, Gary loves to talk about wherever he goes. We're going to talk about a man that is not nearly as well revered by Civil War enthusiasts today. We're going to talk about Philip Henry Sheridan. But uh, first, before we do that, it is indeed a difficult time for America, just as it was back in the 1860s. I think those of us that are a Civil War enthusiast and study the time period know that America has been in crisis before. And as I told my students throughout the week, many of them quite concerned because it's 17 and 18, uh, they're just kind of getting used to world events, and this has been a shocker for them. And uh, the country has been in trouble before. We've weathered crises, and we always seem to be able to find the leadership and the courage to overcome these things. And that's where it helps to be a historian. I've even had faculty members this week kind of hysterical about the future. And it's amazing because Americans are so ignorant of our past history and what we've overcome that if we did a better job, uh, perhaps right now we would have even more security about what we're going to do in the future to overcome this new challenge. So perhaps when you see your colleagues and whatever throughout the weekend and you go back to work on Monday, remind them we've been here before and we've persevered and we'll be fine in the long run. Yes, we've suffered tragic losses, but you know we can talk about Pearl Harbor and Antietam we can talk about the San Francisco earthquake and fire. We can talk about many things that have been placed upon us, but this country will be here long after we solve this challenge and move on to the next one. Well, tonight again, I want to speak about Philip Henry Sheridan, not exactly a household word among Civil War people today. When I tell people I speak about Sheridan, sometimes they wrinkle up their nose and they kind of go, oh, that guy. Particularly if I'm out in Virginia, it's not a popular topic whatsoever. <laughs> As you can imagine, it doesn't work well out there. Phil Sheridan is a man that I think everybody that studies the Civil War, when they hear the name, they go, oh, yeah, I know that guy. 
And I thought I did the same until I started to travel around and to bump into Sheridan in out-of-the-way places that I really didn't recognize him as the man on the black horse leading the countercharge at Cedar Creek. And so I began to delve into his early career a little bit and found some interesting things I'd like to share with you this evening. This is a man that emerged from four years of Civil War, a man who had been a nobody that emerged four years later as a hero. He stood up there with that triumvirate of Grant, Sherman, and then there was Sheridan. Where did this Irish immigrant who started the war on the west coast of the United States come from? How did he rise to this position? To most Civil War enthusiasts, I'm sure in this room, this is one of the most knowledgeable crowds I'm sure I've ever spoken before. Phil Sheridan's probably appears on our radar screen when you read about Stone's River. And you realize he makes that pretty decent heroic stand there as the world collapses around him on day one of Stone's Rivers as he's forced back finally. And he's part of George Thomas's command there, a man that he will go on and eclipse in the post-war years in popularity. He suffered a setback next at Chickamauga when his wing in the army was swept from the field on that dreadful day for the Union command. But then he soon vindicates himself and redeems himself, leading the charge, if anybody indeed led the charge, up Missionary Ridge just a bit later. When Grant assumed command of the overall, the overall command of the war, ladies and gentlemen, he plucked Sheridan from the western regions and brought him out to command the cavalry, the Army of the Potomac. And in there, he's heavily involved in Grant's overland campaign. He is involved in the Shenandoah Valley, destroying it in through that region, leading the counterattack at the Battle of Cedars Creek and Tom's Brook. And he goes on to win great notoriety for himself. But where did Phil Sheridan develop those characteristics he brought to the Civil War? Where did he develop some of his basic concepts of war that he brought to the Western Theater and eventually in 1864 out to the Eastern Theater where he won notoriety? And my thesis with you tonight is to try to show you that where he learned this was primarily in my region of the country, the Trans-Mississippi, from my town of Rolla down to a little place in Arkansas that if you go on the tour with us this May, we will show you in intimate detail. So Phil Sheridan. We first meet this man at a little place called Fort Yamhill out on the Pacific Coast. Every morning he would go and stand on this little rise looking down this lonely deserted dirt road and he would wait for the post rider waiting for the mail. He would do this every Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, anxiously awaiting some word of the American Civil War. It was two months into it. He felt stuck out there in the middle of nowhere. Now, everything that did come out to the Pacific Coast was hopelessly exaggerated. Casualties were in the thousand. The size and scope of the war was unbelievable. But like many of his generation, particularly those graduates of West Point, he felt that the war might pass him by and be over before he would get an opportunity. In retrospect, there was no possibility of that. At first glance, Phil Sheridan does not impress you. Five feet, five inches tall, a man of little or no neck, as Abraham Lincoln once said, he has no neck to hang him. 
Lincoln also went on. I love this Lincoln quote of him because Lincoln's not noticed for being a majestic figure himself. He said his arms are so long he can scratch his ankles without bending over. <laughs> Other people described him as a brown, chunky little chap. And everybody remarked about his famous hair on his bullet-shaped head, which was quite large. Everybody remarked that it looked like he just slapped his hair on with a paintbrush every morning. So we are not talking about somebody that graces the cover of Gentleman Quarterly back at this time, if such a, an edition ever existed. But when you looked at Phil Sheridan, he proved to be much more complicated than appearances were. Born in Ohio, he started life at the age of 14, his working life, in a store called Ditto's and Fink's. He was not a clerk. He didn't sell anything. He stayed in the back room. He was an accountant by trade. And he pored over those books day and night and learned the trade. And unlike many other people in the Civil War, I contend to you as we go on in our presentation today, it's going to be this skill at the age of 14 that will repel him to a major generalship and his position in American history. It's amazing how sometimes when you connect the dots of lives, how it all comes out in the end. Well, after being a bookkeeper for a number of years, he decided to go to West Point. This is after quizzing him about his birthplace, which he always put down as New York City, but he was more than likely born on a ship coming to America from Ireland. The only reason they tried real hard to put his birthplace as New York City is there was a movement after the Civil War to run Sheridan for president. He needed to be a native-born American, but more than likely he was born at sea to his mother. He went to West Point in 1848 and should have graduated as the class of 1852, but Sheridan found West Point difficult. He did not tolerate the hazing, particularly the verbal abuse irritated his temper. In his junior year, he got into a fight on the parade ground with a man by the name of William R. Terrell, future Union general, and whatever happened out there, and to this day it's not quite clear, something about a knife and fisticuffs, Sheridan was kicked out of the point for a year and came back a year later and graduated with the class of 1853. He graduated 34th out of 51 graduates. Sent to the frontier, he was a typical soldier. He moved from post to post, from Kansas to Oklahoma, out into Texas, and then out to the Pacific Coast. There he learned a lot of skills he would bring to the Civil War. He applied his classroom lessons about military history in at least two scrapes. In one scrape, he was wounded. A bullet grazed the bridge of a nose and put a slight permanent crease in it and then severed the spine of the man standing behind him. He learned negotiation skills with the Indians, but most of all, what Phil Sheridan learned, and he would keep to his dying day, was that when you're on the battlefield, you be aggressive. You're ready and you're aggressive. Sheridan was always out front. He always rode point. He led the scouting party. He led raids on the Indians, and it seemed to be that aggressiveness suited his nature. He was recognized for bravery by General Scott, but still, all of this left him standing there on a hill overlooking Fort Yam Hill, a second lieutenant for seven years and waiting to join the Civil War. 
Well, finally, a new position came. He was transferred to St. Louis. Now, to get there, he had to go across Panama through the Gulf and around and enter New York and then go across Ohio and head toward St. Louis, Missouri at Jefferson Barracks. He stopped off and he spoke with his family along the way. They were concerned about the war and about him. Supposedly, he wrote this in his autobiography, so you have to be somewhat suspect. Supposedly, he proclaimed to them, this country is too great to be destroyed, end quote. But if you ever hear about me, I want you to hear that I am doing my duties to the best of my ability. Yeah, sure. I'm sure that's what he said. Sheridan arrived in St. Louis and went eight miles south along the river to Jefferson Barracks. But before he went down to Jefferson Barracks, he stopped in and visited his new boss, a man who had just assumed command of St. Louis, Henry Wagner Halleck. The visit was a brief 20-minute affair, according to the logbook by Halleck's secretary, but it must have oppressed the new commanding general, because the next morning, Sheridan got a note to come back to headquarters and meet Halleck once again. What Halleck had envisioned for the newly minted Captain Sheridan was bookwork. Halleck had apparently, in a conversation with him, realized he was a former accountant, and what Halleck needed Sheridan to do was not lead troops on the battlefield, not train troops for combat, was Halleck needed him to find $12 million. In St. Louis, before Halleck's arrival, it had been led by the Peacock, General Fremont. Fremont had been so busy strutting around with his Hungarian guards and making proclamations and whatever, he had not kept his eye on the ball in his own department. The chief quartermaster of the Department of the West was a man by the name of Justice McKinstry, a thoroughly corrupt man that why Fremont played general, McKinstry played thief, and managed to sign thousands of contracts in the region with kickbacks that turned out incredibly shoddy material that clothed and equipped the soldiers. When we go down to Wilson's Creek and other places, we'll talk about the disastrous policies of McKinstry and what they played in the Wilson's Creek and early other campaigns in Missouri and Arkansas as soldiers struggled with this rather ridiculous equipment that he had bought at top dollar. Well, McKinstry was a Mexican War veteran. He bought at inflated prices. It wore out quickly. Those that did not agree with McKinstry and didn't play ball with him, he soon found, they soon found themselves jailed in the St. Louis jail. So McKinstry was pretty much of a stranglehold on St. Louis until Halleck came in and saw what was going on and put an end to it. But he needed evidence to bring McKinstry to trial. For three and a half months, Sheridan worked seven days a week, 10 hours a day, to track down 92% of the $12 million, find exactly where things had gone wrong, bullied people into giving testimony in court, and when the entire affair was over, McKinstry was in jail, the only man of that rank to be cashiered and put in jail for 25 years at hard labor for his misdeeds in St. Louis, and Henry Halleck was thoroughly indebted to this new captain. And it's going to be this relationship, this Halleck-Sheridan relationship, that will propel Sheridan 
to the peak of power by the end of the war. It is amazing sometime in life the things we do that we don't know will come back. But throughout his military career in the Civil War, Sheridan will always know that he has Halleck to fall back upon when things get a little messy, as we shall see. Well, Sheridan, after doing this duty on December 23rd, walked into Halleck's office and said, I want to go into the field. He said, no problem. We're going to send you to Rolla, Missouri. And I'm sure he thought that was the end of the world, like I did when I took my first job there 29 years ago. Rolla, where is that? Well, he went down the 100-mile railroad to Rolla and got off and found his new boss there, which was General Samuel Curtis, a rare breed of human being, a man who had an engineering's degree and a law degree at the same time. Now, I teach in a town where we're full of engineers at our engineering school, and let me tell you, those two professions don't mix very well, as many of you in the audience probably know. It's not often to find people that think with both sides of the brain like that in the same person. Curtis was putting together a campaign, a winter campaign, that would start in late 1861 and drive the Confederates out of southwest Missouri and into northwest Arkansas. Sheridan signed on as his quartermaster, and then quickly, the day after Christmas, came back to him and said, you need a better commissary officer. I want to do that, too. Curtis was very tepid about giving the young man both responsibilities. Sheridan apparently could be extremely persuasive or else a large pain in the backside. I'm not sure which it is, but either way, he gets his way and he becomes the quartermaster and commissary man that's going to provide the key logistics to Curtis to undertake a winter offensive. This starts in late January of 1862. Ladies and gentlemen, the Ozark Plateau today is difficult to grow anything in. I know my wife and I run a blueberry farm, and believe me, when I tell my students that agriculture is difficult on the Ozark Plateau, I know firsthand what I'm talking about. You have to be slightly demented to try to do this and love challenges in a great way. Well, Sheridan got into all kinds of trouble before this expedition left. It was called the Army of the Southwest. And before it set out, there were hundreds of wagons parked in the little town of Rolla. Sheridan went along and told everybody, you can only take two. That meant for some regiments to throw away 30, bag 30 wagons of baggage. Officers were told by Sheridan, you cannot take tents. You will sleep out in the open under a blanket. Sheridan realized the difficulties of this campaign. There was nothing between Rolla and Springfield where they were heading except a one-track dirt road through the wilderness. They had 12 rivers to cross with no bridges. And the supply line would stretch all the way back to St. Louis and the railhead at Rolla and they simply couldn't take that much with them. Repeatedly as they prepared, Sheridan went to Curtis and said, we've got to cut the amount of supplies we're carrying. We simply can't do this. One captain of the 37th Illinois, a John Curtis, no relation to the commanding officer on this expedition, said, three or four times they've come to us and told us that we cannot take anything whatsoever. 
I am down to one pair of underwear, one pair of socks, one blanket, one raincoat. How can a man survive in this type of an environment? Probably no army in the Civil War marched as light until late 1863 as Sheridan forced the Army of the Southwest to do across the Ozark Plateau. Now you might say, what's the big deal about all this? But when you analyze this, horses and mules for the wagons were the problem. The Ozark Plateau is barren in the wintertime. It's not far from that today. And if you get off Interstate 44 running through my part of the country and you expect to find food and sustenance in either direction, east or west, you may be hungry for a long time. So it's not all that different than Sheridan faced in 1862. Every time that you put a wagon into this movement heading south, you up the amount of grain and fodder they had to carry to support it. For instance, a, a, a set of horses pulling a wagon across the plateau back at this time, each horse required 15 pounds of grain per day. In addition to that, it required 18 pounds of hay. Now, every time you add a wagon, you added six horses or mules. And you can see how the problem simply compounds itself, and that's why Sheridan was such a difficult person when it came to putting together this attack column coming out of Rolla. Considering the fact that the officers had horses, the artillery had horses, the ambulances had horses, he would soon calculate that he needed, a, if we added any more wagons, he would need hundreds and hundreds of wagons just to carry the fodder for the animals, not including the men, just the animals. So Sheridan, ladies and gentlemen, became extremely difficult with Curtis, and he is the one that convinced the commanding general to march light and quick. Well, Sheridan is great at making influential friends and using them as he climbs the ladder to success. And one friend he made on this trip was a man by the name of Grenville Dodge, the man that built the Transcontinental Railroad after the war. Dodge did not go on the expedition down to the south into Springfield and into Arkansas. He stayed and commanded my little town of Rolla. And there he opened a spy network that served the entire region in fact, if you read Dodge's papers and letters, uh, there's a letter in there from Grant when they moved down to Vicks, Vicksburg in which he writes Grenville Dodge and say, put together for me a spy network like you did for me in Rolla for that entire region. One of the spies that he hires is a young man named by the wild Bill Hickok. And Hickok becomes the top federal spy in the area until he gets into a little trouble with a guy stealing horses down in the Springfield Square kills a man in cold blood, and a few other little problems like that. But that's another story. Grenville Dodge wrote in his memoirs, if you want to get them out of the library, he says, concerning Sheridan crossing the Ozark Plateau in 1862, he said, people write of Sheridan's destruction in the Shenandoah Valley, but I will tell you, if they had seen him in 1862 in Missouri, that was nothing. He had a certain way about going up to cabins and making them show them where the corn was, where the sweet potatoes was, where they could steal the mules and horses, and it made no difference to him if they were pro-federal or pro-southern. His army needed it, and he would take it at whatever measures he needed to do. 
Another man wrote, a Captain Frederick Benteen, who becomes famous in a little Indian problem out west after the war, with some guy named George Custer, I believe. Frederick Benteen was on the march with him and went with him many times, raiding cabins and farms. And he wrote in his memoirs, he was the most ruthless man I have ever seen when it came to food, fuel, fodder, and horses. He said, if you could have followed us, you would have starved because we stripped the countryside completely bare. And this is what Sheridan knew he had to do to make this trip successful. Well, as they approached Springfield, Missouri, supposedly in the town in late February, were the Confederate Army of the region under Confederate General Sterling Price. Sheridan writes in his autobiography that on the day of the battlefield, on the day of the battle, February 27th, he was appalled at 4 o'clock in the afternoon when General Curtis wrote back to him and said, we are going to attack the town. Put your wagons in a line behind us and make sure it's a last line of defense in case the Confederates break through. <laughs> Sheridan says, I had terrible visions of my Teamsters jumping off of their wagons and running as fast as they could at the sound of the first shots, much less being a last line of defense. But he wasn't needed. Sterling Price had abandoned the town, and Sheridan came in, and within two days had the mills operating, was slaughtering beef cattle, and was scouring a 100-mile range for forage and taking care of things. Springfield would become his new supply base. Well, as February turned to March, General Curtis pushed into Arkansas, pushing the Southern Army in front of him. They finally stopped by a mountain called Pea Ridge and a little creek called Sugar Creek. There he sat. He felt he had gone far enough. He was at the end of a 228-mile, excuse me, 258-mile supply line. Sheridan was in the middle in Springfield trying to shuffle things from St. Louis through Rolla and then down to the Army in Arkansas. He was doing amazing work keeping Curtis's army supplied while he was down there. An amazing thing to do this in the middle of winter. Through two ice storms, two snowstorms, the Union Army never hurt for supplies. Well, the two-day Battle of Pea Ridge finally erupted. Sheridan was not there. He was back in Springfield. The two-day fight saw the Union Army win the battle and cripple the, cripple the Confederate chances for ever recovering Missouri. Sheridan, though, did control the telegraph wire. And the first telegram that came in to be sent back to the president announcing the victory at Pea Ridge was sent by that great German self-promoter himself, Franz Siegel, who was in the process of flying from the battlefield. Sheridan decided to pocket that telegram and on that let General Curtis announce his victory, which Curtis did the next day. But for all the trouble he would have with Curtis for the next three months, he probably should have sent Siegel's telegram. Within three days after the war, the two men, Curtis and Sheridan, who had been quite close, the quartermaster who had allowed Curtis to win his biggest victory of his life, the two men were now at odds. And it all happened over horses. A lot of the Union soldiers after the battle were going around rounding up horses, 
stealing them, and then bringing them in and trying to tell Sheridan that they were recaptured horses, whatever, uh, they, were, they were horses, and he should pay them the $125 each for them. Sheridan assumed just what he did, that they were stolen. He wrote General Curtis a nasty letter and said, I will not jayhawk like your men. In my part of the country, jayhawk is a word for steal. I will not do that. Your men are stealing. I won't pay them. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Curtis listened to his subordinates and became furious at Sheridan. The two men exchanged these vicious telegrams back and forth until finally Curtis blows up and sends a terrible telegram up to Henry Halleck up in St. Louis saying, this man is a disaster. I can't do anything with him. He levels 13 complaints against Sheridan and the last one, number 13, I love. While in Springfield and supplying us, he has become friendly with Southern women. We hardly know who he is. Well, Sheridan sent back a very tart supply. If you're a captain, you don't get to talk to generals like this. And he found himself under arrest in the back of a wagon, rumbling up the dirt road, heading towards St. Louis under arrest. Curtis sends another blistering telegram to Henry Halleck. And by this time, as he rides up to St. Louis, Sheridan realizes that this relationship is over. They're no longer of value to one another. But when he gets up into St. Louis, who does he go and see? He goes and sees his old buddy, General Halleck. What does Halleck do? Halleck says, this matter is over. He tells Curtis, leave Captain Sheridan alone. And ironically, you know, I never picture Halleck as a man with a sense of humor. I always picture him as kind of this dour guy. You know, he's called old brains and whatever. What did he do? He sent Sheridan up into Illinois on nothing more than a horse-buying expedition, of all things. I'm sure the irony must have been interesting. Sheridan is in this town on the day that the newspapers blare out the Battle of Shiloh news. And Sheridan jumps on a steamer and heads down to Shiloh as fast as he can. When he arrives, he finds that General Halleck, his old mentor once again, has beaten him there. Grant is in disfavor now. He's been accused of drinking and not being prepared. Halleck is in control, inching forward foot by foot to Corinth, Mississippi. He goes to Halleck and Sheridan says, General, I want a combat command. And he says... Captain, I need you to do something else. And he puts him in charge of some engineers corduroying roads. Sheridan said it was the most despicable, disgusting work that he ever oversaw. It was not what he wanted. Well, on visiting, on visiting Halleck a week later, he goes into Halleck's camp and he looks around and it's a disaster. He goes up to Halleck, walks right up to the commanding general and says, General, you don't know how to take care of yourself well in the field, do you? Halleck kind of sputters and he says, make me your commissary guy. I'll clean your camp up. You'll live well. Bingo. He becomes the commissary guy right next to the general. I love this guy. Well, believe it or not, after about four weeks as they get close to Corinth, there's a flare-up. 
they ask him to do something that he's not qualified, not qualified, but they ask him to do something not in his line of duties. And rather than just doing it, he actually goes and he tells the commanding general Halleck, General, I don't know why you ordered me to do that. That's not what I'm here to do for you. Find somebody else to do it. Everybody else in Halleck's military family is stunned. Who is this guy? What's he doing? And he doesn't do it true to his word. Other people try to tell him to go and apologize, and he says, no, I will not do it. This man is um, argumentative to a fault, and he's got an ego so big he'll trip over it several times throughout the American Civil War. Finally, a command spot opens up. It's the 3rd Michigan Cavalry. The governor of Michigan is traveling with them. He likes Sheridan, and he gives them, he gives him the command. He takes the commission to Halleck to sign, and Halleck looks at it and says, you can't go into combat. You're a guy, commissary guy. I need you here. And Sheridan goes away crestfallen. When he goes back to the camp with the other commissary offers, they convince him to oh, go back and try again. And so an hour later, he goes back, and he must, again, he's either a tremendously persuasive man or he's a thorn in the backside, and Halleck signs it and says, oh, by the way, you better get going because these guys are going out in a raid tomorrow morning, and you'll want to lead them. So he races to the camp of the 2nd Michigan. Who does he find there in command of this cavalry regiment? But uh, a man who's going to be General Granger, General Granger who loves to fire artillery and not do what generals are supposed to do. If you know anything about him at the Battle of Chickamauga and at the Battle of Wilson's Creek, he loves to play artillery. He loves to play number one loader. He loves to be the rammer guy is what he likes to do. There he is at Chickamauga. He's got his general stars on. He's a number one rammer guy. This guy loves artillery. Granger gives now Colonel Sheridan his, tar his, his eagles and puts him on, and Phil Sheridan rides off at the head of the 2nd Michigan and 2nd Iowa men into his first combat assignment in an infantry captain's uniform with old eagles on his shoulder. Where are they headed for? Well, they're headed for the little town of Boonville, about 27 miles below Iuka and Corinth, Mississippi. There is rumor that there is trainloads of troops there and ammunitions and whatever. This is the last map in the package if you want to follow me along, ladies and gentlemen, through there. The leader of the brigade is a man by the name of Colonel Washington Elliott, and they are going to attack this particular town on about May 30th. When they get close to Boonville, Sheridan is told to ride south of the town and destroy a bridge. Sheridan rides below Boonville, goes a mile and a half, two miles, three miles, can find no bridge. His men tear up track. They come back into Boonville. Remarkably, the Confederates have left about uh, 27 carloads of supplies parked by the side of the railroad there, and they put the torch to that, and they evacuate Boonville. But Boonville is critical for General Phil Sheridan because two weeks later, he will find himself back in Boonville again. This time, he'll find himself going there as the head of the Cavalry Brigade. He's been promoted to a brigade commander now. After commanding a regiment, he's now a brigade commander. 
They go down there looking for Confederate cavalry. They find them at a place called 20 Mile Creek. Sheridan routes the Confederate cavalry, suffers his first, cavalry, his, his first casualties as a leader. He suffers three wounded, two killed at this little skirmish, and he goes back to Corinth for a second time. Two weeks later, he's told to go to Boonville and set it up as an outpost. Pope's army is moving down from there. Halleck's army is moving down. Pope is on the wing of the army, and they want to keep Boonville as an outpost. So Sheridan now takes his cavalry brigade down there. Colonel Sheridan arrives and throws up a camp outside of town. A few days later, he hears that Confederate General Chalmers is bringing a cavalry group up into his region, and Sheridan fortifies the town of Boonville and prepares for its defense. He lures Chalmers into somewhat of a trap. The Confederate cavalry charges down the Blackbird Road. What they don't know is that the Union soldiers, all 1,200 of them, have Colt revolving rifles and Sharps carbines against the very ill-armed men of General Chalmers, who number only about, oh, 660 men to 900, depending upon whose numbers that you use. The battle is over in about 25 minutes. Chalmers' men are in flight. Sheridan orders part of the 2nd Iowa to chase them. They're doing quite well to a man named Adams, who's leading the 2nd Iowa's charge about three miles outside of town, runs headlong into a tree, knocks himself out, and that ends the... Uh, that ends the pursuit. It's, it's early in the war, ladies and gentlemen. You, you have to understand these men are quite amateurs at all of this situation. But Boonville plays an important role in the life of Phil Sheridan. Just like the Pea Ridge campaign did, where he did so well and then got moved up for his success there to be with Halleck on this campaign, Boonville now becomes the jumping-off point for the remainder of his career. After the Battle of Boonville, the third fight at Boonville, I might imagine, it's been six weeks since he's been a combat commander. Three brigadier generals, General Granger, Elliott, and Sullivan, will write this note to General Halleck, who's now back in St. Louis. General, brigadier generals are scarce. Good ones, scarcer. We, the undersigned, respectively beg you that you will obtain the promotion of Philip H. Sheridan. He is worth his weight in gold to us. Well, Sheridan was promoted immediately, dated back to the fine work he did at the Battle of Third Boonville. Now, was that really the victory that he claimed it was? Sheridan claimed in his official report that landed on Halleck's desk and all these brigadiers' jests Death said he had driven off 5,000 Southern troopers. He had inflicted severe casualties upon them, numbering in the hundreds, and he had suffered only light casualties. Well, after the post-war, people went out and interviewed some of these Confederate commanders and found out that Sheridan had inflicted a total of about 11 casualties on about 600 to 900 men. Some creative white writing had gotten him in position and moved him there to move up the ladder. I'm sure the fact that it was Halleck and Sheridan once again played a role in his immediate promotion to Brigadier General. Well, as we know, he will go on and do quite well as a Brigadier and be promoted to Major General. As I said in this opening, he will do well at Stones River, have difficulty at Chickamauga, 
lead troops up Missionary Ridge, and then will be plucked from that position to his most important role in the Civil War, leading the cavalry, the Army of Potomac, and then the Army in the Shenandoah Valley. But how did he get that job? I've always read that Grant noticed him during the Missionary Ridge situation, and when he went east, he wanted an aggressive commander. And that's how he pulled Sherman with him. But upon further review, as they say, it didn't quite happen that way. Here's what happened one more time. In 1864, Grant moved into Washington, assumed command of the armies. Alfred Pleasanton was the chief cavalry officer. But he had just three days before Grant arrived gone to Congress and testified negatively about General George Meade's conduct in something called the Mine Run Affair. He blistered Meade, and Grant realized that he couldn't keep Pleasanton as head of the cavalry after criticizing his commanding officer in public. He needed a new cavalry officer. They met at the War Department. In the meeting were Meade, Grant, and Henry Halleck. When asked who Grant wanted, now I, I couldn't believe this, but this is in several sources, Grant said, I think I'd like William B. Franklin to be my cavalry commander. Now, if you know anything about William B. Franklin, I don't think there's anybody with more of a goose egg behind their name in the Civil War than, than William Bates Franklin. His pitiful performance uh, in, in the Fredericksburg campaign is only more compounded if you know anything about the Red River campaign, which is more miserable than at Franklin, if that's possible. Halleck sat there in silence. So did Meade. Finally, Halleck spoke up and said, how about Phil Sheridan? And once again, that connection from St. Louis and the paperwork he had done catapulted Sherman, Sheridan from being another corps commander out in the West to now his position of chief of cavalry that would make his reputation in the Civil War. Well, he was quickly promoted when he came to the Eastern Theater, and there again Sherman, Sheridan demonstrated his energy and his ability. He relentlessly drove his troopers in his first combat action there, just like he had at Boonville. Sheridan, as we found out, was always a man who was aggressive. The remainder of the conflict, Sheridan would be at the forefront of it. Yes, he carried baggage with him. He was loud. He was profane. He had a large ego. He was a man who had come from nowhere, an Irish immigrant who had landed here and worked his way up. He had gotten his job because he was an expert at paperwork for Henry Halleck. Yet, ladies and gentlemen, the Trans-Mississippi is always looked upon in Civil War history as a dumping ground for those that couldn't cut it out east. But early in the war, in 1861 and in early 1862, it was not a dumping ground. It was an incubator. It incubated the generals for the North in particular, not only the ones at the top, but those that would occupy what I call middle management positions who would go into the Western Theater and go into the Western Theater and win the war for the North. Where did they learn the type of aggressive warfare that they brought to those theaters? They learned it in the Trans-Mississippi.
which was violent, uncontrollable. That's where Sheridan learned what to do in the Shenandoah Valley, strip the regions of supplies. That's where these men learned to be aggressive because of the tremendously quirky nature of the war in the Trans-Mississippi. Philip Sheridan rose from clerk to colonel to major general to hero, a typical immigrant story in America. It's been an honor and a privilege to speak before you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. We'll have a moment for some questions. I believe you have a minute Certainly. for that. But we would like to present you with oh my. our, uh, for gallant service, medallion. And for gallant service, we mean it for Thank sure. You. Presented to David C. Hines, September the 14th, 2001. May we say Very thank good. you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Are there questions? Yes. Frank Allen. Uh, the relationship between the General Meade and the Sheriff, please. <laughs> <laughs> the question is the relationship between General Meade and General Sheridan. I guess tempestuous, tumultuous. Uh, it, it, it all comes down to the fact that Sheridan did not believe Meade to be an aggressive enough type of an individual. It, it, it all happens after the wilderness going to Spotsylvania. There, there is a, only a few roads through the wilderness, and Sheridan is trying to get his troopers down these roads. Meade's men are sprawled across the roads, and they start stepping on Meade's soldiers. Meade comes up and chastises Sheridan, and with his profane language and ego, he essentially tells General Meade what he ought to be doing with his soldiers, and it's not pretty. The next day, Meade and Grant meet. It's, it's about 14 hours later, the two of them meet, and uh, Meade is upset. He's got a temper just, you got two men here that's got just, you know, tinderbox tempers. And uh, in the process of it, apparently Meade tells Grant, and you know what else he said? He said, if I just get my men out of the way and give them enough leeway, I'd go and kill Jeb Stewart. And Grant perks up and says, he said that? He said that? Well, then do it because he can usually do what he says he's going to do. And so that's, that's according to what everybody says. Now, I've not found anything to disprove that. It's a little too pat for my liking there, but, boy, it sounds good. And um, essentially, that's what sends Sheridan on his trip down that results in Stewart's death at Yellow Tavern and the battles at Hawes Shop and all along down and through that region down there. Uh, Sheridan brought, I, I believe, I'm not a cavalry expert in the Eastern Theater by any stretch, but I do believe he brought an interesting vitality and energy and a different point of view to that cavalry than they had had under previous leadership. Question right here. Yes, sir. Woo. Uh, comment on his relationship with Thomas. Uh, up until 1864, it's a pretty good relationship between those two. Uh, Sheridan really liked Thomas's discipline and style. It was what he liked with his troops. He liked fighting underneath them. It's only toward the end of the war, apparently, that Sheridan comes under Grant's anti-Thomas influence after Sheridan being with him for a period of time. And so the relations with them after the war are somewhat icy, as best I can tell. And I think that becomes under Sheridan being around Grant and, and, and Grant's 
people who don't like Thomas as well. There's a bit of professional jealousy there, some dislike for a lot of different reasons. So while they serve together, they work extremely well together. But in the later part of the war, somewhat icy. Yes, sir. Uh, I wondered, how did Sheridan perform, in your opinion, at Perryville? And then, as another part, another question entirely, do you think he was right in the way he handled Warren? Oh, boy. Well, you all not going any place for a while, are you? Uh, the first question is Sheridan's performance at Perryville and how did he handle Warren? Uh, quite frankly, at Perryville, I think we can grade him. Being a school teacher, I can give him a grade. It's my purview. I, I think we can probably give Sheridan probably a C-plus there. I think he's still trying to sort himself out as an infantry commander. Uh, yeah, he's in division, but, you know, he's trying to sort himself out. I think he does some good things there. I think he makes some mistakes in, in what he does there. And, and we can talk about that later if you want to. His relationship with Warren at the Battle of Five Forks, I think he abuses Warren. Um, I, I'm somewhat of a Warren fan down and through there, but that's Sheridan. When he gets his temper up and doesn't get his way, he goes kind of crazy. And it's like I said, that's the baggage that he carries into combat. He's loud, he's profane, he snaps to judgments, and if you're not with him, he'll try to punish you if you if you if you disobey or he thinks you're not on the same you're not on the same page he is. He gets away with that because he becomes part of Grant's group. And so, you know, there, there's some problems there. Uh, is he an impetuous individual? Yes. But uh, I think he, he, he errs there. I think he's indecidedly not in the right there with Warren. And I think the facts after the war, when there was a hearing, whatever, bear Warren out greatly. But uh, at, at the time... Uh, Sheridan, is, he's being Sheridan. He's being this ultra-aggressive, get-out-of-my-way-do-it-my-way guy. And particularly by late 18, by, by that time period, 1864 and 65, uh, Sheridan's ego has gone like this. As he's moved up the ladder and now he's in his position, uh, if, you, if you look at the letters of his that survived back to his family, uh, the I word is used completely in through here. And, and he really has developed quite an ego. Yes, sir. Uh, according to Richard McMurray, the Civil War was won by the Union forces in the West, in the Western Theater. Uh, what do you think about that thesis? I think that's absolutely true. I think Richard's a genius. Uh, because we live out here, we, we know that. It's just hard convincing those people back across the mountains of that. Uh, when I go back there and speak and talk, it's hard of that. I think definitely the war is won in the West. It's not the Trans-Mississippi, but the Western Theater. I, I think it, it, it breaks the backbone of the Confederacy there. Um, you know, did there still need to be a defeat of Lee's army to finally put the war to rest? Yes, but, you know, once, once Sherman breaks through down at Atlanta and whatever, I, I, think, I think you can begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel there. And the nation did apparently also because they reelected the man from this state president one more time. So I think we just have to go back and look at the way the country voted after Sherman won in, in the Western Theater and some of the other activities going on, Calvary-wise in the Western Theater. The people of the time period could obviously see it, and we may not be able to see it in hindsight, but they could. And I think that's the best evidence to that. Yes, sir? This may be a naive question, but Trans-Mississippi, does that refer to three states? Trans-Mississippi refers to everything west of the Mississippi River. 
um, uh, Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Arkansas. That's pretty much the Trans-Mississippi during the Civil War. Yes, sir. Being Irish was, I believe, a Roman Catholic. At a time uh, when being Catholic was not necessarily an advantage in the United States. I don't know to what extent uh, General Sheridan was religious, but what impact did this Catholicism, if any, what impact, if any, was there on his career? And secondly, is it at all surprising that he reached the pinnacle of greatness in, in the eyes of his country, uh, given the fact that he was a Catholic? That's an excellent question because people, that was one thing I set out to look at, didn't have time to include in this presentation, but Sheridan being a Catholic, the question is what role did his Catholicism play in either hindering him or whatever in his role to success? And the answer is Sheridan basically suppressed his religion and did not bring it up in any manner that I have ever been able to find. I've talked to people that are much more knowledgeable about Sheridan's later war, post-war years and during his, uh, from the time of Chickamauga on out into the east, and apparently there is no references to this whatsoever. And, of course, he wouldn't have been called a Catholic. He would have been called a papist back at this time as they called Catholics because of their... Uh, their uh, conference with the Pope or whatever, and, and Sheridan simply didn't get around to that. And the reason I think he did is because he was with Sherman, and Sherman, even though his wife was Catholic, was very distrustful of that religion. In fact, as Sheridan is dying and he's lapsing in and out of a coma, he makes his wife promise him that she will not baptize him a Catholic. And, of course, as soon as he goes into the final coma, she's got a priest there. He gets the last rites. He gets baptized. And as I stood before Sherman's and Ellen's grave, you know, they're a little bit of a distance apart there in the cemetery. And I've always wondered at what kind of a meeting that was when Ellen finally came to join him in the great beyond there. Just what the first words were between those two people. So I think that might be interesting if we ever get up there to look that up and ask those two folks just how that kind of played out up there. Might I had to have some marriage counseling up by the... St. Peter or St. Paul in the first moments of meeting. Way in the back. Yes, sir. The question is, what happened to Sheridan after the war? Well, Sheridan participates in, in Reconstruction as one of the governors of the, re, the 11 districts. He immediately goes to Washington after this, and he becomes what today would be an undersecretary of the Army as Sherman takes over command of the U.S. Army, Grant and then Sherman. He works for those two men. In 1884, he is promoted to the chief of the Army, solving Indian problems. And really, most of his tenure in the post-war deals with Indian problems on the frontier. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing that's always associated with him is the only good Indian is a dead Indian. I don't believe he said that. I believe he was, was grossly misquoted, but I think he would have agreed at that time with the spirit of that quote. Uh, Sheridan is the one. He uses his tactics that he learned in Missouri and Virginia. He essentially came out to the frontier with the Indians and put the Army in barracks uh, throughout the summer and throughout the fall. And the Indians thought they had a soft man out there in control, and then he attacked them in the winter. 
where they had no grain for their ponies, they had no grass for their ponies. He didn't destroy the Indians, he moved into their camps, he destroyed their shelter, their blankets, and their, their buffalo meat, or whatever they had for winter food, and then walked away and told them, when you get hungry, tired, whenever, come to Fort So-and-so, you're on the reservation. And so once again, he applied the tactics as a commissary quartermaster man and his tactics against the Indians. And I think it's interesting how this string keeps coming up in his military career of understanding that an army has to have its stomach to move on, and if you destroy that, you eventually destroy the army. Uh, Sheridan will go on and he'll, till he retire from the army, and then that great man himself, General John McAllister Schofield, will take over the U.S. Army, which is a, whew, is that a scary thought, huh? Okay, perhaps the largest liar and whiner in the American Civil War, bar none in my opinion. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Welcome your thoughts about the great equestrian statue of Sheridan here in Chicago at the intersection of Belmont Avenue and Lakeshore Drive. I'd like to make a few personal comments beforehand because of personal interest in that statue. As I believe uh, most uh, persons here this evening uh, know of that statue, the sculpture was the same uh, sculpture who did Mount Rushmore. And my humble opinion, it's the greatest equestrian statue I've ever seen because most equestrian statues are like Logan, in which the uh, rider and the horse are at parade rest. But uh, the statue of Sheridan is in action, and it shows uh, Sheridan arriving on the battlefield at uh, Cedar Creek. And it's amazing, a picture is worth a thousand words. You can see what the sculpture was trying to express. When Sheridan rode across the field of battle in front of his troops, rallying them for that counterattack, and he took off his hat, and the men cheered, you know, ready to charge, and the uh, sculpture uh, captures that in an action uh, setting. The statue is neglected by the city. Uh, statues in the loop, like the uh, Logan statue, have been uh, restored in the past 10 years. You've probably seen that special uh, chemical they put them on. But the, uh, the Sheridan statue has not had that done over the past 10 years, and uh, it's showing its neglect. And if there's consensus by uh, other members uh, here who, who may uh, visit that, I've, I've seen it within the past year, and I see it in the past 10 years, they've done nothing with it. Perhaps the round table could uh, uh, do something to have that uh, restored like other statuary in the city. So, Having said my personal emotional feelings about it, do you have any comments on that? Well, I, I will tell you, the first time I came to Chicago, I dragged my wife down to that statue when she was going, we're going to see what? <laughs> <laughs> However, she did enjoy going through the loop and found, found new places to spend money on, on, on the way there. So it worked out for both of us. I, I agree with you about the statue. It, it epitomizes the aggressive nature of Phil Sheridan. I think the artist definitely captured the man's uh, not only his image, but I think the essence of what he tried to do as a soldier. And, uh, yeah, it is, it is a shame that that statue is neglected. But I must tell you, you are much farther along than we are when I drive up through St. Louis. I have to drive by Franz Siegel every time I go through the city. So even though your statue is in somewhat disrepair, believe me, you're much, much better off than we are with Franz Siegel sitting in the middle of Forest Park and everybody wondering why this man has a statue to them, and I simply tell them, I wonder that also.
Any other questions? Once again, ladies and gentlemen, it has been an utmost privilege to be here with you tonight. Thank you very much.